friends, Elisa Childers here. I am so excited to get to talk to Chelson Vicari today, who writes prolifically about the Christian left, about progressive Christianity, and how those liberal ideas are coming into mainstream Christianity. Today, she's going to specifically talk about her visit to the Wild Goose Fest, which is a very influential festival in the movement of progressive Christianity. So stay tuned. I'm excited to welcome today's guest, Chelson Vicari. She serves as the Evangelical Program Director for the Institute on Religion and Democracy, and she earned her Master's of Arts in Government from Regent University and frequently contributes to all kinds of different conservative outlets. She's also the author of a book called Distortion, How the New Christian Left is Twisting the Gospel and Damaging the Faith. And she also, you can find her writing articles at juicyecumenism.com. So, Chelsea, I'm so glad you could be here. Welcome. And I just want to say that I've been a fan of your work for a while. I read your book a few years back, and I just appreciate that you are one of the lone voices in the wilderness sort of addressing progressive and liberal Christianity, which um, I'm particularly interested in. So recently, you went to the Wild Goose Fest, which I'm dying to ask you about. But before we get there, I just want to ask you a bit about your story. What, uh, what led you to this place? Did you grow up in a Christian home? Uh, what was it that made you become passionate about identifying, as your book says, a distorted gospel? Well, thank you so much, Elisa, for having me because Absolutely. the feeling is mu- mutual because <laughs> you are also a woman who is working in this nitty gritty area of identifying distorted Christian teaching. And that is not an easy field to work in. Like you said, it's a lonely place right. to be. So thank you. I'm a fan of yours. Oh, thank you. I did grow up in a Christian home. Um, well, my parents came to know Christ when I was about eight or nine. So I knew what a life without Christ looked like as far as my family went. There was a lot of chaos, a lot of fighting, a lot of yelling. And then I remember what Christ, what my family looked like after experiencing Christ. And there was a lot more peace, though not perfection, mm-hmm. uh, but continuing a continuing search among all of my family members uh, to seek holiness, which was a huge change. Uh, And so I grew up conservative, Assemblies of God, denomination, and then I got to college, and it was in college that I first got to know what progressive Christianity looked like, Mm -hmm. and it was very subtle at the time. And so I go in very naive, I love Jesus, and um, I had read through the Bible, but I was not, certainly not an expert or a scholar in apologetics, and I could not defend my faith well, I will Mm -hmm. say that. And I'm still learning, so I, I want to give that caveat. But it was the leaders, many of the leaders in this prog- in this progressive Christian campus ministry that I started attending that started to make me question what I had always known to be true. Hmm. And they were very effective. I started to give in a lot, and especially when it came to issues of sexuality it was not as an overt push as it is now, I fear, among college campuses to reconcile same-sex relationships with Christianity. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was just getting started. We uh, we yeah. were watching videos and reading books that now those authors and those teachers are publicly uh, religious left elites. Rob yeah. Bell was one, for example. Yeah, yeah. 
And so what, what year was this, by the way? This was 2007 through yeah. nine. Yeah. So the discussions about human sexuality and Christian sexual ethics were just getting started, right. at, at least in my circles. Mm-hmm. And so th- I'll never forget there was one, um, and I always hesitate to tell this story, but I think it's important because it clearly demonstrates the transition that I had. So we were on our way back from vacation from Tennessee with my parents, and my parents were talking about marriage and Christian sexual understanding, a Christian sexual understanding, traditional. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting defensive because, wait a minute, I had made a lot of friends within this campus ministry who were gay. Mm-hmm. And when I say a lot, I, I, to be fair, it was only maybe two, but the attitudes among all of my friends were, this is not a problem. Right. And so I told my parents as such, what is the problem? Why are you being so um, outdated? Why are you being so bigoted, so hateful? And my parents had no idea where any of this was coming from. And they, to their credit, did not yell back because at that point I was getting um, loud and frustrated with them and calling them names. And they tried to talk to me sensibly, but really what they did was just pray for me Mm -hmm. because they did not know what to do. This was just out of left field for my parents. Anyway, I went, I graduated and left that campus ministry and went to Regents, um, School of Government, Regent University in the United States. It's a conservative Christian school. So I get there with this very liberal um, feminist bent. Mm -hmm. And I had a professor who I, a couple actually, but one in particular took notice. And he took the time to explain apologetics to me. And I was assigned Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy's How how now shall we live, which is an amazing book on apologetics. And it answered a lot of questions that I had while I don't believe it. I don't remember it going into detail about human sexuality. I just remember it challenging a lot of, um, I remember it challenging the lens that I saw scripture through, Mm. which at this point, because of that campus ministry experience was to interpret scripture basically as I wanted to Mm. and to interpret it so that I could have as many friends and be as accepted as possible. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's really what it boiled down to. I just wanted to be liked. And if this is what was going to get me, uh, the most amount of friends and the least amount of hostility and the least amount of confrontation, then I was going to take that route. Um, but reading how now shall we lived reading through the scriptures with a, a, a traditional lens was hugely helpful. And then of course it was my parents praying because the Holy Spirit was doing a work. I mean, it just so happened that Regent was the school that gave me the most money to attend. Otherwise I would have never gone to Regent. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I can see God's hand, his providence leading me on. And so at that point, even still though, I wasn't concerned about progressive Christianity. I was interested in the pro-life movement and I really always had been pro-life. So thankfully that was never an area that was up for debate. That just seemed common sense to me that all life is precious. That means the unborn life, the most vulnerable form of human humanity is precious and therefore should be uh, stood up for defended. So I went to work for a conservative nonprofit in DC that was mostly um, doing pro-life work and then got a call from the IRD because a board member uh, was a friend of mine and she recommended me for a job. That's a really long discussion um, or explanation of how I got to where I am, but it is important because there was such a gradual leading of the Lord. I can see how he used that experience in college to help me to understand how the religious left go about 
distorting the scriptures and Mm -hmm. and distorting truth because it happened to me. And so now uh, I feel like I can at least empathize with how it happens to other young Christians. Mm. Well, it's, it's funny how similar our stories are because it was around that same time. I'm a lot older than you, but (laughs) I wasn't in college, but I, uh, around that same time, 2009, 2010 was when, uh, I was in, it wasn't on a campus, but it was actually in a church in a similar situation where all of these discussions were starting um, to happen. And it was interesting because recently I read uh, one of Rachel Held Evans' book about her journey into kind of a more progressive type Christianity. And she describes the same thing happening all over online and in churches where just young people were starting to see Christianity different. And then, of course, now we have full-blown progressive Christianity that that um, so many young people especially are getting sucked into. And so after this experience that I had, after a few years, I started to see this theme pop up, this wild goose fest. And I had friends that went. And um, so I remember going on the website once and just kind of going, what is this, this all about? And so they're just, I haven't seen a whole lot of things written about it, but I saw recently that you actually attended the wild goose fest. So, so I want to ask you about your experience, but before we do that, what is the Wild Goose Fest? Just for people who are listening who maybe have never heard of that. Um, and then who are some of the featured speakers and artists? What, what's it all about? Sure. So the Wild Goose Festival is a weekend gathering of progressive Christians in the format that follows Burning Man, or I think of it as the progressive Christian Woodstock. It's tents all over a campground, and there are speakers what seem like hundreds of speakers speaking simultaneously, and it's impossible to hear every speaker. Mm. Uh, but it's a large gathering. It has a very good attendance. It, from what I could see, it looked like close to a thousand attendees, and mostly white, old, uh, older mainline Protestants. But it's it has a surprising amount of young families that go. Surprising mm. amount of young children that you'll see. So you see children running around and playing. Uh, the speakers this year that are most notable, Jen Hatmaker spoke. Mm-hmm. Of course, she has made headlines because she has recently reconciled same-sex relationships with Christianity. Mm-hmm. Tony Campolo, Shane Claiborne, I believe, was there. Those are the major names. Uh, Stan Mitchell was there. Those are the bigger names that your um, listeners might know because, honestly, there were so many speakers I've never even heard of. They're very much fringe, on the fringe of the religious left mm-hmm. and um I can't even think of their names off the top of my head, but so many speakers, uh, a long weekend is what it makes for. And this was my second time attending. Wow. So, uh, I'm going to ask you, you wrote a blog post where you kind of identified the five main teachings that, that kind of came out of there, but, uh, what, what are some events that go on other, other than the actual teachings that you kind of walked away with? What what are some uh, activities that happen at Well Goose Fest? So uh, the campground is in Hot Springs, North Carolina, and it's a beautiful area within North Carolina's Appalachian Mountains. So a lot of times the younger folks during the day are water tubing or hiking, taking advantage of the beautiful outdoors. Mm. So they're not necessarily under the tents listening to older no offense, but washed out religious left elites speaking. They're just not. Mm. Um, it's the older folks that are 
attending as many sessions as they can. But that night, it's a music festival. So Amy Grant was one of the headlining music artists this year. And I leave before dark, to be honest, every day. And um, so I don't know what the music festival part looks like, but that's another side of the event. And then there's lots of food and picnics and just lots of socializing. I mean, it looks like a a pretty fun event if you are like-minded, but if you're not like me and you're having to sit through some of the sessions that I sat through, it can be a a pretty dark experience. Yeah. That's what I've heard. I've read a couple articles uh, that people have written who have attended and that's the impression I got as well. So you talked about uh, visiting a breakout session called World Without Walls. What was the main idea being communicated in that session? What I took from that session was a pro-open borders narrative, um, without a doubt. It was hosted by an infamous liberal congregation, Calvary Baptist in D.C. Their pastors are two married lesbian women, and one of the pastors led the discussion. She introduced both legal and illegal immigrants, but in one of the, in one of her closing remarks, she equated Jesus with illegal immigrants saying that because, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the quote in front of me, I apologize, but she said, uh, Jesus was punished for disobeying the state and because he was mucking everything up like illegal immigrants. Uh, I found that to be completely inaccurate and Mm. dismissive of Christ's plan as fulfilling God's eternal plan as our redeemer and, Mm. and giving us salvation. I did not see the connection that she was making. Um, so to answer your question in short, it was a pro open borders session. So almost in a way, kind of shifting the focus of the gospel onto something more political, maybe. Absolutely. It was a total politic, excuse me. It was a complete politicization of, of the gospel. Yeah. And it's interesting. Have you ever, I'm sure you've probably gone on progressivechristianity.com and seen the, the eight points of progressive Christianity. Have you seen that? It's been a while. Yeah. Because you know, some of it's funny, the, the five points that you came out with really parallel a lot of (laughs) what's on that site, which makes sense. But, um, so there was also, you mentioned a focus on environmentalism at Wild Goose Fest, which, I mean, I think all of us could agree we want to be kind to the planet and all of that stuff, but tell us a little more about the, the emphasis there. Sure. Yes, creation care is something that's important to me and my family, but this session was the most amusing. I had to take it um, in stride because there were a lot of good intention people presenting. I sat in a circle with about five others and different speakers rotated in. One of the speakers, I thought he did an excellent job. To be fair, he talked about how there's a lot to learn from rural communities about farming and canning and those skills are being lost. I agree with him. I learned so much in my rural community now than I ever learned from hipsters in D.C., uh, all, he made some really good points. But then another speaker said, um, if you want to attract young people to your church, I recommend putting solar panels on your church's rooftop because then the young people will see that you share their values. I thought that was ridiculous. It wasn't, let's talk about having good and sound doctrine and encouraging people to grow, grow in their faith and grow closer to the Lord. It was put solar panels on your roof. That was just a good example of how there's a lot of silly wackiness at Wild Goose. 
We're going to come right back to this discussion in a moment, but I want to take a second and talk specifically to parents. If you have a young person who's heading toward the high school age, or maybe they're already teenagers, you might be listening to this thinking, my goodness, how do I prepare my kid to interact with some of the claims they're going to face when they leave the safety of our home and our church. It, it used to be that we would have to prepare our kids for the claims of atheists and unbelievers or people of other religions, but now we're having to do that, but also to teach them to think critically and clearly when interacting with the claims of those who would say they are also Christians. I want to tell you about an amazing ministry that can come alongside and help you with that. It's called Impact 360. Impact 360 facilitates summer experiences for high schoolers. I spoke at the Propel Experience last year. I'll be there again this year. And guess what? Registration is open. So if you go to impact360.org slash propel, you can register for next year's Propel Experience. And it's the early bird pricing right now, so you'll get $100 off. But if you use my name as a promo code, that's ALISA, all caps, A-L-I-S-A, you'll get an additional $50 off your tuition. I really hope you'll take advantage of this. Let Impact 360 come alongside you, partner with you, and help prepare your kids to think critically and think biblically about the world they're stepping into. All right, let's jump right back into our discussion with Chelson Vicari. Well, there was a particularly disturbing presentation that had to do with abortion, and I'd love to kind of just take the rest of this podcast and talk about that issue because I know that that, that is a issue that's, that's important to you as it is to me. Uh, but tell us about the session that uh, talked about abortion and what they meant by the phrase reproductive justice. Sure. So the this session, it was my last session that I was going to attend on Saturday. It had been a long day. I had just sat through Jen Hatmaker giving her story a couple hours earlier. And just a few tents down, I go to this uh, session called Moving Beyond the Pro-Choice, Pro-Life Binary Arguments. So to be fair, I thought, okay, I'm going to sit through a, a session that says we have to be um, consistent in our pro-life ethics from womb to tomb. That's what I've often heard from more moderate progressive Christians. This was not that. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there, two Planned Parenthood workers walk up, and I know they're Planned Parenthood work workers because they're wearing their Planned Parenthood t-shirts, black mm -hmm. t-shirts with trust women across the front and underneath it says Planned Parenthood of Memphis. Mm -hmm. They work for Planned Parenthood. So I think, oh my goodness, this is going to be interesting. So there's only three speakers. Two of them are Planned Parenthood workers. The other works for uh, a community organization that is sympathetic to abortion, or at least this particular speaker was. I can't speak. She, maybe she wasn't speaking for her entire organization. Just three speakers. The two, the two Planned Parenthood workers who called themselves abortion doulas meaning they support wow. women before and during and after they have their abortion. So they go in while the procedure is taking place. They be their support system. They work for Planned Parenthood. I'm not sure they're actually, I mean, I question whether they're trained doulas or not, but yeah. that's besides the point. They lead the discussion. The third speaker had very little to say. The two Planned Parenthood workers drove the narrative a pro-choice narrative. There was nothing pro-life about this discussion. It was completely slated. But I think 
that it was a good, clear picture of where the the religious left is headed as much as they want to say, or some of them do still say that they're pro-life, but there's always that caveat. They always say, I'm mm-hmm. pro-life, but mm-hmm. we shouldn't advocate for criminalizing abortion, but whatever their caveat is. So one Planned Parenthood worker, because I refuse to call her an abortion doula because I think it gives too much um, credence to what she actually is doing. She said she used to find all abortions are tragedies, but they needed to happen. I'm paraphrasing. But now she said, and I quote, abortion can be a life-saving thing. Wow. She said that. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking around and I'm in total shock. I'm making sure several times that I'm recording this because, and I'm pinching myself to make sure this is actually happening, happening because it was so overtly pro abortion. So at one point, a woman stood up, this was during the Q and a later, she stood up and she said, I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian and I'm a gynecologist and I'm an abortionist and I'm proud, basically I'm proud to be such. And then another, a Catholic gentleman stood up and said that he was tired of the Catholic Church being a one-issue, uh, seen as a one-issue, namely pro-life institution, and he thanked the abortion doulas or Planned Parenthood workers for what they do. And I just thought, I have to ask a question. I have to say something. My conscience was uh, stirring me to action. And yeah. so I did, I waited, there were several questions and I waited patiently on the side and then it was my turn. And my question was, I, th- I thanked them because I wanted to, to make sure that they knew I didn't fit that caricature that they were trying to paint of pro-lifers. Mm-hmm. I wasn't abrasive. I wasn't hateful and bigoted. So I stood there and said, thank you for presenting, but I have to admit that I come to different conclusions on this issue so my question is, in regards to people with disabilities, people of color, girls and women, how do you reconcile your work when abortion disproportionately affects those communities? Mm. How do you reconcile your work? You say, basically, I was trying to get at, you say that you are for girls and women. You say that you are for people of color, and you say that you're for people with disabilities, you say that you're champions of those groups, and yet abortion is affecting those groups of people more than any other. Yeah. Well, the the nonprofit worker said she didn't understand my question. Fair enough. Okay. She was not <laughs> there. She was, you know, I don't think that she really was prepared for the discussion in general. The more boisterous Planned Parenthood worker went into a discussion on how, yes, abortion affects um, African-American community. So therefore we need to be advocating for increased access to healthcare, uh, and increased entitlement programs. So she was shifting the narrative very cleverly, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. tends to happen. And I have to say it was the third plan. It was in the other Planned Parenthood worker who took my question seriously and answered it as honestly as perhaps she could have. She said, yes, women who might choose abortion, because their baby, she used the word fetus, is mm-hmm. a girl, was one of my sticking points. So during her training, she said, they were asked, what could your sticking point be to not being able to help a woman go through an abortion? And she said, girls. Yeah. Now, I thank her for that. But then she quickly brought up a hypothetical situation that I believe helps her get through 
supporting a woman who wants to have an abortion, a sex selection abortion. Mm -hmm. She said, well, what if that woman who comes to us, her husband makes her, forces her to get an abortion because he does not want a girl. I have to help that woman essentially. And if that helps her to get through the day Mm -hmm. and helps justify her work in sex selective abortions, well, that's not a very good answer. Yeah. So it, it, it's interesting. That's how I, I think it was very telling that she said, yes, there are sticking points, but I have to create ways to get through it, it is what I took from her answer. It's like killing women in the womb in the name of feminism. Exactly. It's, and, and it's interesting you said that, that she said, I just want to kind of make this point again, because I, I think it's quite powerful when they were saying abortion can save lives. And it's almost like trying to turn the narrative to make abortion into something that is pro-life. Exactly. That, that yeah. is exactly what is happening. Yeah. Uh, this is the issue that is so frustrating to me about progressive Christianity, is I hear them saying, we need to outlaw the death penalty. We need mm-hmm. to criminalize guns. But when it comes to criminalizing abortion, And let's not forget what abortion is. It is the murder of innocent lives. When Mm -hmm. it comes to criminalizing even something that might stop sex-selective abortions or abortions affecting um, people with disabilities, Down syndrome babies, abortion giants taking advantage of vulnerable African-American women who are in difficult situations— they will not say anything about criminalizing that act, something that seems so basic to Mm. the sanctity and dignity of human life. And that is, I think, what tells me, and this is my personal opinion, that I don't think they are as pro-life as they try and make themselves out to be. I see them, anyway, using the I'm pro-life label when they want to give themselves a vague authority so that Mm. they can turn around and either bash the pro-life movement or say, I'm pro-life, but here's why we can vote for Democrats or here's Mm -hmm. why uh, crisis pregnancy centers aren't enough or are are failing. Whatever their caveat is, Mm -hmm. I I think we need to be careful because there's, I will say, um, there's only one, and I I go to conferences hosted by the religious left all the time. I watch them online. That's my job. And there has been only one speaker I've ever heard who talked about the dignity of the unborn, and that was Shane Claiborne. Hmm. So it makes me respect him. At least he was able to recognize in front of a religious left gathering, it was at Wild Goose two years ago, actually, where he was saying he was giving the womb to tomb narrative, but he took the time to say, look, the unborn have dignity and we have to recognize that. I've never heard any other progressive Christian talk about the dignity of the unborn without caveats. Mm. Wow. You mentioned the womb to tomb narrative, just for someone who may not be familiar with what that means. Give, give us an idea of what that means. Sure. They'll say that it's a consistent life approach. So they'll say that we need to support the unborn, but we also need to support uh, or not support the death penalty so that God is the only giver and the only one who can give life and the only one who can take away life. Um, 
I have some issues with that because I do think that the state has a responsibility in some senses to ensure justice. So they would be, for example, anti-war. They would not see any validity in the just war theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so anti-war, anti-death penalty, anti-abortion. Mm-hmm. So, I, and you know, I will say after that pro-abortion session at Wild Goose, a woman came up to me and thanked me for my quest, thanked me for asking that question because she works for an organization that is uh, a consist has a consistent life approach, and that's mm-hmm. the term that they use. Mm-hmm. And I was grateful for her because she also raised, she tried to raise that issue as well uh, in, in her question. Although I don't think that they answered her question at all. And um, then actually there was another woman who came up to me and thanked me. Uh, she stood up and said that she had had an abortion and she actually regretted it and still regrets it. And wow. because of that, she adopted a, her foster child in a way of sort of uh, paying penance for her abortion. And she, she admitted that to the group. And I was grateful for her witness to say, I had an abortion. And I, she actually said, I felt the baby move away from mm. the abortion tool. She said that in front of this group, wow. and and um, although she was grateful for the abortion doulas because I think she was a teenager, she was 19 at the time, and she was alone, and she needed support, and she had none, yeah. um, but at least she was willing to say, I felt my baby move. I felt yeah. that, that this the child, yeah. yeah, this wasn't a fetus that was just a clump of cells. This was a baby yeah. that moved, and I regret it. Yeah. Well, back, you know, 2009, 2010, when all of this was starting to kind of bubble up, I, I remember noticing that conversations on LGBT inclusion were shifting. But at that time, it seemed like most of my friends who were kind of heading toward a progressive bent were, were still just pretty much all going to be pro-life in the sense that they would be against abortion. It seems like that is changing. Are you seeing a shift? Are you seeing actually a trajectory moving toward um, I mean, obviously, seeing this at Wild Goose Fest would indicate that you are uh, seeing a, a trajectory moving toward m- a more pro-abortion view rather, and maybe just leaving that pro-life view behind in the progressive church. Is that something you're seeing or that you predict will happen? I absolutely, I absolutely stand by the prediction that they are moving towards a more pro-abortion approach. Of course, they won't call it that. But we're seeing the continued politicization of the religious left, and they always have been. But mm-hmm. a lot of these post-evangelicals who are joining the religious left, which was traditionally more mainline Protestants, they take their pro-life ethics with them. But then I think they're starting to recognize, I can't truly hold to the same pro-life ethic that I might have had before. So I have to come up with another way to appease the, the pro-choice, the overtly pro-abortion crowd among the, pro, the religious left. Mm-hmm. And so I have to appease this pro-abortion group, group, but I have to make sure I stay pro-life, whether it's for appearances or for personal conviction. That is not my choice. Um, I, I, I think it's also important to say that wild goose is a trendsetter among the religious left. So they might say, well, this is an extreme ex- an extreme case, or uh, this is the far left, or, well, what happens at Wild Goose doesn't speak for the entire religious left. And that's probably true. But what we've seen in years past is certainly the LGBT activism has been at Wild Goose, and it was at Wild Goose long before it started infiltrating evangelical circles. Mm-hmm. And now we see 
the trajectory of evangelicals or more conservative groups within Christianity moving the same direction as Wild Goose. Jen Hatmaker is the perfect example. Yeah, I was just going to say that, yeah. Yeah, so she was, I mean, when she spoke, her tent was overflowing with people. It was standing room only. She got the biggest applause that I had heard the entire weekend. She was beloved among this crowd. But she even admitted, you guys have been doing this activism a lot longer than I have been. So thank you for what you've been doing. So I think it would be ignorant on us to dismiss what happens at Wild Goose. I think we need to be paying attention to something that seems like it's happening on the fringe because it's going to influence the trajectory overall. I hope that this is not the Achilles heel of those post-evangelicals who have joined the religious left. I I hope that they remain pro-life in mm-hmm. every way. All you And all I would like is for them to say, yes, they're the unborn have dignity, and yes, we should defend them. But in in saying that, take actions to do so. Go to the March for Life, and you might not agree with everyone there. You might not come to the same conclusions on the way to defend life, but show us that you're not just using the label for your mm-hmm. own gains, because yeah. that's, at this point, what I'm seeing is the I'm pro-life, but group. Yeah. It's it's like they're they're using the phrase because probably the vast majority of Christians these days are still going to identify as pro-life. So it's like co-opting the term, uh, you know, pro-life. And it's like, in a way, it's like to keep it positive. We're pro-life. We're pro-woman. We're pro the woman's life, you know, and it, and it gets shifted to where it still sounds positive. Um, but like you said, abortion can save a life is, is a perfect example of that, of yeah. trying to keep a positive t- term, but really it's, it's death for someone. So. Exactly. I, I want them to speak truth into their own camps. Why are you not calling out those who support? And there's so many in the religious left who support abortion. I've written articles about liberal clergy who have prayed for blessings over abortion clinics and abortionists who are abortionists. Why are you supportive of those um, those actions? I, I want to hear those relig- among the religious left who say, I'm pro-life, to reasonably criticize their own tribe who are supportive of abortion. And I don't think that will happen. And what I do believe will happen is they just slowly and slowly stop talking about the dignity of the unborn and try and make it an issue of advancing universal health care or increasing entitlement programs and less about speaking and defending on behalf of life, innocent life that is being taken yeah. I, I, I want to see consistency yeah, as, as they want to see consistency from conservative Christians. I think it's fair that we ask for the same. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, what's interesting about, you know, you were mentioning the womb to tomb narrative. Often we see that play out on Facebook with conservatives getting beat over the head with the idea of, hey, you're pro-life, but you're pro-death penalty, so you're inconsistent. You know, but I think the key thing you said there is we're talking about innocent life. You know, there can there are nuanced views on the death penalty um, because there's crimes that are being committed. There, there's like you said, uh, what's good for the rest of society, and all of those questions need to be asked in a nuanced way. But no one can argue that a, a baby in the womb is committed some kind of crime and deserving of death. You know. Yeah. Something I've said is, if society does not support the most innocent form of human life, which is that of the unborn, 
then they do not have the pro-life ethic necessary to support the dignity of any of their citizens elsewhere. And so if the religious left wants to talk about aiding women, aiding people in poverty, aiding disenfranchised communities, then I think it's fair to ask them to stand alongside traditional pro-lifers who say, we want to see the dignity of the unborn defended. And one quick thing before we before we end uh, today, in your experience, what's their typical view on euthanasia? What's is there is there sort of a, a typical view that the progressive Christians or the left have on on that issue? That's interesting. I I personally have not seen that issue come up very much, um, but it's something to certainly look into. Yeah, that would be interesting to find out. It would out. be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as uh, as you got home from the Wild Goose Fest and uh, kind of back into normal daily life, what do you think was your biggest takeaway? What were your thoughts and reflections in the days uh, that went by after you got home? My initial reaction once I was home and processed everything that I had witnessed was I was thankful for the work of the IRD. And that's not to be a shameless plug for the organization I work for. Mm -hmm. It truly is not there were there were not a lot of conservative Christians walking around wild goose monitoring what's going on and then going home and reporting. So mm-hmm. it made me thankful that I have the opportunity to work for an organization that is working in a really difficult area of ministry, but I do believe that's what it is. It's ministry. Yeah. And it made me recognize all the more how important my job and the jobs of my colleagues are. That's great. Well, I am certainly grateful for the work you do, uh, just tremendously grateful. And if anyone's listening and you want to know more about Chelson's work, go to juicyecumenism.com and also grab her book. You can get it on Amazon. It's called Distortion, How the New Christian Left is Twisting the Gospel and Damaging the Faith. It's an important read. If you are seeing some of these issues pop up, in your daily life online, uh, you, you want to get connected with Chelsea. She's on Facebook and Twitter. Um, so Chelsea, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and talk about this today. I'm, I am just, I'm cheering you on and praying for your ministry and, uh, pray that God blesses you, uh, as the years go by. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button, or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes.